there are institutions, firms, brokerage units that go to different banks. They'll go to a network of banks or they'll make their own network of banks and they'll say, I would like to have the right to give you deposits and I'm going to buy that right from you for a small amount of money. Uh, please reserve enough space for I'm going to buy $5 million worth of deposits at your bank, but those will be broken into smaller accounts below the FDIC limit. And I'm going to do that at all these banks. And then we'll have the right to make deposits at all these banks for one institution, one business that gives me a million dollars. I'll split that up into five accounts at five different banks. And then that money will all flow back into one account for payroll purposes. And that one day, It'll be in one account, and that will be the only day it's not covered by FDIC insurance. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English debt. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Together, we will offer you insight, drama, confusion, befuddlement. It'll be fun. We'll, we'll do this together. Nobody's going to know what's going on because this show is ded dedicated to economics. Uh, to some extent, we will talk about um, ecosystems uh, when it comes to war and fighting. We'll talk about ecosystems, which is a name I made up the other day by accident. And I think it sounds so good that I'm going to keep using it. But before we get started on the ecosystem of Russia or, or the ecosystem of China, uh, we will need to tell you some things about ourselves. We have to open up a little bit here at the beginning, which is a much better way of saying it than disclose. I mean, it's, you, you don't unopen a door. So we're going to open up a little bit. Um, first, open up, otherwise known as disclosure, is that we are bald, we enjoy puns, and we have beards. The two of us are father and son, and we will lead, leave it up to you to determine which is which, but I'll give you a hint. Jeff is older than Jake. Mm -hmm. You may have all the information you need to make that judgment. Uh, the next layer of this is that this is the personal wealth coach. Wait, that's redundant. I said that at the beginning of the episode. But the personal wealth coach is not just the name of the program. It's also the name of an investment advisory firm registered with the Securities and Exchange Commission. We're required to tell you that so that if we say something stupid, right? Scratch that. We will Wait say many, we many say stupid things. things. Stupid a lot. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if we say things fraudulent, misleading, or lie-related, uh, you know who to report us to. Uh, stupid is as stupid does, um, which should tell you something. I don't know what it would mean. Anyway, uh, just because the firm is registered with the SEC doesn't mean that the SEC believes that the firm has some kind of a halo uh, that has the firm has some ability to walk on water or perform any other forms of miracle. It's, they're just the regulatory authority. They don't give attaboys good jobs, pats on backs, or anything like that, except to people that are reporting crimes. They can give very large monetary compensation and attaboys in those cases. Um, we don't fall in that category. So they don't approve or disapprove 
And this message will self-destruct at some point in the future as the digital recording of it decays. I don't know when that will occur, but everything self-destructs at some point. So must be highly secretive. Uh, let's see what else. Um, we're not paying for this program. Oh, no. I know you're listening to a radio program on AM radio on a Saturday morning, and it's not paid commercial programming. How is that possible? Well, because we're decrepit. Our program started in 1997, way before they latched onto the idea of selling miracle cures on Saturday morning to pay the budget. So I don't know how we've maintained, because they don't pay us, maybe, but we're not paying them, so they're probably losing some money in our time slot. You guys are listening. We have advertisements, so, um, but it's not paid. We do advertise on the station for this program, and we pay for that. Uh, we have a discounted rate to pay for it, but we're paying for it. Uh, they also advertise for this program on their station studio and so on. Uh, you have a disclosure for us, and this is, ladies and gentlemen, prepare. Oh, boy. This one is amazing. Go ahead. Oh, boy. All right. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said statements. Awesome. That was fantastic. Information. And information. information. Yes. Yeah. Or unsaid. Yes. Um, and the, that led, I, I skipped one of our disclosures. Um, we're registered to give advice at a fiduciary level. We're doing a radio program on which we can't give advice. Well, why not? Well, there's privacy issues. We have to know who we're talking to. A good piece of advice to one person could be a really bad piece of advice to another. How could that be? People say, and I get this a lot when I'm walking around, they find out I'm, I'm an economist or I'm in the market somehow. What's a good stock to buy? What's my, what's the best investment I should be in? It's like going to an optometrist and saying, what's the best glasses prescription? I need that one. What's the one that works the best? Um, it's, it's not one size fits all, unfortunately. I wish it were. It would make glass bu glasses buying a lot easier. It would certainly make portfolio management easier. Tax returns would be simple as could be. Everybody would know what everything... No, that's just not how it works. So we can't give advice on the air. And that was my excuse. And I'm sticking to it. So what are we doing instead? Well, he just said it. Hopefully we're giving you some education in the middle of the befuddlement and confusion that we provide free of charge. And we have a question from our faithful questioner, our, our great inquisitor, Inquisitor John. Subject is broker deposits. What are these and how do they contribute to bank riskiness? The article from the Wall Street Journal that he sent us is banks load up on $1.2 trillion in risky deposits. And then in the circle part, it says banks collectively held more than $1.2 trillion in broker deposits in the second quarter, um, uh, and according to the Wall Street Journal's analysis of the Federal Reserve's, I'm sorry, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Um, and that's 86% more than the year before. So what's a brokered deposit? We talked about this, oh, probably seven or eight months ago in a lot of detail. And um, so you're, I would recommend going back and checking that out. But I'll kind of fill in. that This is a, when, when the big bank failures were going, SVB and First Republic cratered. Um, and we were talking about the businesses that were there that had uninsured deposits. That's risky. These uninsured deposits for these businesses, it means that they're, 
likely to run away as soon as there's a sign of trouble because they are not insured. Well, then we talked about people ask, what do we do if we're a small business and and we have more than the FDIC coverage in our bank? We've got more than $250,000 because we've got to make payroll. Uh, and we got enough employees to make payroll, but now we're at a local bank and we don't have FDIC coverage. And I talked about several ways of handling that. And usually those uninsured deposits are in businesses that are relatively small. They're big enough that they've acquired and they're making profits, that they've got a, a relatively large payroll above the limit, but they're not big enough that they've hired a a, a business finance specialist to run their finance. They've got a normal bookkeeper that's used to running small businesses. The FDIC insurance covers up to $250,000. But there are institutions, firms, brokerage units that go to different banks. They'll go to a network of banks or they'll make their own network of banks. And they'll say, I would like to have the right to give you deposits and I'm going to buy that right from you for a small amount of money. Uh, please reserve enough space for I'm going to buy $5 million worth of deposits at your bank, but those will be broken into smaller accounts below the FDIC limit. And I'm going to do that at all these banks. And then we'll have the right to make deposits at all these banks for one institution, one business that gives me a million dollars I'll split that up into five accounts at five different banks. And then that money will all flow back into one account for payroll purposes. And that one day, it'll be in one account, and that will be the only day it's not covered by FDIC insurance. So this is a cool idea. Well, that firm that's in the middle is the broker. That's a broker deposit concept. And another reason why someone would use brokered deposits is if they want to get a high interest rate on their deposit, but they don't want to be constantly checking the charts to see who's giving the highest interest rate right now. But if you're an executive at a company, it's your obligation to try to maximize your profits and lower your your uh, expenses. So if you can get a higher interest rate somewhere, you should. Well, if you have a broker working on it, and they're constantly looking around and they say, hey, we're going to move you over to these higher interest rate positions. We've just made some deals with some other banks. Well, that means that, that those brokered deposits could all move very quickly if a bank doesn't keep up with interest rates. If they can't afford the interest rate for some reason, those deposits can all leave at once. And that can leave them with less money than they were expecting. That's why it's relatively risky. It's not as risky as having uninsured deposits like what the two bank failures had. It's not risky like that in that each account is relatively small, not huge accounts that are uninsured that would leave immediately. Each account is relatively small, which means as they move, it's supposed to have a smaller impact on the whole bottom line at the bank. They're not going to lose a lot of assets, except that they've been doing a lot of this purchasing. The good news on that is a lot of the brokered deposits are at larger banks. And you can sort of see that in the graph that's on the chart that was in the Wall Street Journal. The bigger banks have been hitting more of those brokered deposits. That means that they're less likely to be hurt long term. The, the bigger banks, all the banks have extra restrictions on brokered deposits. So I'm kind of laying this out. The Wall Street Journal, it was right to point out that there's a lot of them out there. 
But this is one of the more regulated areas of banking, even in the smaller regional banks. That's one that the Federal Reserve has been watching for a long time because it's a well-known fact that that money can move quickly. So it's got a, a maximum percentage of deposits allowed at any bank can be brokerage. So that's, that is a really long-winded, uh, again, mostly useless information, except that it will make you understand what's happening at the banks and whether or not a bank is in danger. The regulators have already looked at this one and you, you are pregnant with thoughts, so please, it's not Labor Day, well, but, but go ahead. There's, there's a couple of things. Uh, there's two, two ways this happens. One, you can go to a brokerage firm and purchase a CD. Yep. And the CD is at a given bank and it's FDIC insured if you don't, if you don't have it over 250000 And it has typically the same surrender charge, the same charge if you leave that you would encounter if you were actually buying the certificate of deposit at the bank, which is generally six months, either three thirty, either ninety days or six months interest. In other words, they'll charge you a penalty, as they used to put the signs in the bank, substantial penalty for early withdrawal. Those are not a risk of any significance. Yeah, those are sticky. Um, those they don't want to move that money because they lose money when they do it. But brokerage firms also have something like a money market fund. It generally pays less than a treasury money market fund because, frankly, the banks are paying less than the treasury is paying for short-term securities. That's right now. Um, Sometimes they're at par with each other. Right now, it's it's a little out of whack. And uh, So go ahead. Yeah. So, and, and one of the reasons is they pay less is because the banks have to pay the FDIC insurance premiums on that money. So they have a higher overhead, put it in there. But it looks like a money market fund if you go to a brokerage firm. There are no surrender charges to move it or to take money out or to do anything else. It's FDIC insured. It pays typically a little lower interest rate than the treasury money market funds. But it's got FDIC insurance on it. And that money is very, very hot. It moves around very quickly. The brokerage firm can, if a bank says, hey, we're getting a little bit of uh we're a little tight here. Uh, things are being a little rough. We're going to pay a little lower interest on this. That money can suddenly disappear. And one of the things that I think it's important to understand is when you deposit money at the bank, you're loaning money to the bank. You're making a loan. If you have $30,000 in an account at the bank and they're paying you uh, a pittance of interest on it, you are loaning $30,000 to your bank for practically no interest. Now, if you tried to go to the bank and borrow $30,000, I suspect they would charge you a lot more than that. Yeah. But then again, you aren't FDIC insured, and they are. And the other side um, of that is when you call the bank, you can literally, it's called calling the bank. When you say, I'm going to remove all my money at any given point, you have the right on that loan to demand 100% of the loan value right now, whenever you want. That's a deposit. That's part of the reason why the lower interest rate as well is the CD. You don't have the right to call it without losing something We're on a bank deposit, you can call it at any moment. If the bank gives you a loan for your car and they call you a, a year into it and say, we demand you pay 100%, you would hopefully be paying a lower interest rate on that loan because it's callable. Well, they, don't, they don't do callable car loans very often. No, they don't. <laughs> so you have a, so the issue is, and this is the concern, and this, I've seen this, I saw this happen once before had the banking crisis back in the 90s. We had brokerage, we had brokered CDs then. We didn't have brokered money market funds like we have now, bank-insured money market funds, which are even hotter. And when a bank would start to get into trouble, you would see the fact that they their 
their percentage of their deposits that were brokered would go up and up and up and they would be paying higher and higher and higher interest on. One of the things to watch out for in general, and I don't think that's changed any, is if you go to three different banks and say, I would like to buy a CD or deposit savings in the bank, and one of them has substantially higher interest rates they're paying than the other two, the one that's paying the substantially higher interest rates may be in financial difficulty, and that's why. They want to get some money in the bank. They want you to, to loan them some money because they're in trouble. Just as if you were in a business and you were beginning to experience some financial stress, you might want to go to the banks or go to your friends or go to something else and say, would you like to, we'd really like you to loan us some money and we'll pay you some high interest rates on it. But the higher interest rates indicate higher risk. And, yeah. and above all, Jimmy. above all, and this is critical, the FDIC insures up to $250,000 per account. Don't assume that because they covered SVB and some other big banks, when they failed, that they will cover you if there's a rash of bank failures, as we saw in the 1990s, and as could happen again. It Having more than $250,000 in an account is potentially asking to lose some money. Yeah. So the let me be as clear as possible on this. If it's FDIC and you're within those limits, you're covered in the event of a bank failure. But if a bank is offering you a significantly higher interest rate than other banks, this is very much like you using a higher interest rate credit card. You would likely only use that after you have used up all of your cheaper money options. The only reason high interest is charged is because of higher risk. That's true at a bank as well. When you look at a bank and they say, we're going to pay you this interest rate and it's higher than everybody else, why are they offering that? Because they shouldn't want to pay you a much higher interest rate than everyone else. They need the money for some reason. So those are little pieces to be looking at. You want to make sure your bank's in good shape. It should be paying a competitive rate, not the highest rate. And people go, why not? If you could get the highest, why don't you? Well, because the rigmarole of getting the FDIC insurance to you happens relatively quickly, but then they're moving your account around a lot to get it. It winds up at another bank and you have to establish relationship with a new bank and a new login and all of that stuff has to happen. It's not crazy hard, but when you start factoring in, hey, I lost three hours of my day because I was trying to get a quarter point extra interest, it may not be worth it. Though That's my bottom line there, is that interest rates at a higher rate are not paid voluntarily. There's, there's not an altruistic bank out there that says, we love our depositors so much, we're just going to pay them more than everybody else because we want to. I was I was amazed, though, when I saw some statistics last week that apparently, and, and this is still a little shocking to me, the majority of money that's on deposit at U.S. FDIC-insured banks in the United States still is receiving next to no interest rate. Right. And that's no because the vast majority of us are used to 20 years of low interest rate. It doesn't affect us to switch a bank because of interest rates doesn't make sense, except that well, it might actually now make sense. <laughs> Because <laughs> the don't interest have, rates are much different. The thing is, you don't even have to switch banks in many cases. Well, I spoke to somebody recently who said that they had uh, a substantial amount of money, uh, over $100,000 in the bank, and they were getting paid next to nothing. And uh, they went to the, they contacted the bank and said, 
we are thinking about moving our money and instantly got an offer of four and a half percent. Um, that's one thing you might want to look at. If you've got your savings someplace and you're still getting uh, a tenth of a percent or two tenths of one percent interest on the money, you might want to contact the facility and say, we would like to have a higher interest rate account. And I'm not even talking about a certificate of deposit where they would issue where there was a charge for early withdrawal. They literally have other accounts that they'd be more than happy to pay you not more than happy, but they'd pay it to you. If you don't ask for it, you're probably not going to get it. Yeah, uh, that that is absolutely the truth. Um, if you're sitting in a place where they don't have to pay you a lot of money, they don't have to pay you a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> That's really and it. You might be able to find a place where they would gladly pay you more money if you switched. Uh, there's some interesting things going on in the economy. And this is Jeff, by the way. The... The economic news in the second week of September, which is what we just passed through, in case you didn't notice, they seem to be rushing by, was amazing. Uh, it was anything but boring. Why was that? Well, there's a couple of things going on out there that are old news to us and maybe news to you. Moody's Analytics, the Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank, and just about everybody who's looking at what's going on in the economy are estimating that the annualized gross domestic product of the United States for the third quarter will come in somewhere between four and five percent. The lowest estimate I've seen is 3.99 or something like that. The highest estimate is up above five. And, and of course, it the future is always uncertain and the third quarter isn't behind us yet, but a lot of it is. And the indications are there that we're going to have a nearly record-breaking third quarter following a 2.1 percent GDP growth in the second quarter. Now, the gross domestic product of the United States, remember, inflation is subtracted from that before it's posted. So we're not talking about having 4% inflation or 3.6% inflation, which is pretty much what's estimated right now going for the past year. Uh, and then the economy coming in at maybe a percent above that. No, it's coming in at something around 4 to 5% above inflation the third quarter. That is uh, the, for whatever it's worth, that is the uh, pipe dream that uh, President Trump campaigned in 2016 that he would produce a 4% uh, GDP growth. Now, it didn't happen, but that's beside the point. It's happening now. And it is it is quite astonishing. It's one of those things that I don't think people are paying a lot of attention to, but probably should be. We are in, in my half century or so of watching the economy very carefully. I find us in one of the most um, fascinating uh, periods of economic history that I've ever encountered. We are just, we're in a position where the United States economy, by every normal historical measure, should be decelerating into a recession. We've got an inverted yield curve, We've got interest rates that have gone up dramatically. Uh, we have a whole series of things that have happened in, when inflation comes down. Uh, all these things are happening at the same time. And when all of that happens historically, it normally means the economy slows down. Instead, the United States economy is speeding up. It's accelerating. Now, I'm sure there will be many doctoral uh, presentations, doctoral uh, dissertations written on this as we go forward in economics. But it is a fascinating thing to watch. And inflation is falling. The economy is accelerating. Uh, yes, we have 3.8% unemployment as opposed to 3.4% unemployment. That's still near the, the lowest it ever gets. We have this amazing economy that is charging forward 
uh, at an amazing rate of speed. I'm using amazing because I am amazed by this. <laughs> it's it's phenomenal. I mean, the the data um, that's coming in here is it's providing study and uh, material for decision making in the future that we've just never had before. It's pretty amazing. And the other thing is, Americans are continuing to spend. Now we are in an interesting economy. One of the big the big picture, I want to throw something in the big picture. There's an experiment going on. Europe and China have focused on exports. They focused hard on exports. The European economy is largely driven by Germany. It's the biggest piece of the European economy. And Germany determined very consciously a while back, uh, when the East and West Germany united in ancient history, that since East Germany was so poverty-stricken and it was dragging Germany down economically, they were going to focus on building things, manufacturing things, and exporting them. And they did a really good job of that, and the German quality is still there, and, and people like that quite a lot. Um, China made a decision about the same time that they were going to bring themselves out of third-world uh, ox-driven plow conditions into uh, an, equi an equity level with the, with the developed world by building a lot of things and exporting them. It had worked for Japan after World War II, it, and it worked very, very well for China. The two of them made very different decisions about how they were going to regulate that. Uh, China initially allowed a lot of free enterprise and then switched over to basically a one-man command, command economy that's very orderly, that's very clear, it's uh, very uh, rational, uh, can be easily understood what's going on because one person's in charge of it and he says something happens and it happens. The Europeans decided to set up an immense bureaucracy with nobody in charge. There is no executive in the European Union. There's nobody in charge of the European Union. They don't have a, they don't have a, they don't have a president of the United yeah. States. They, they, they don't, don't have, have a founding document that, co that governs right. them. They have the ability for any country to veto all of the others. So, so that's one experiment. The Chinese are doing another experiment. And here in the United States, we're doing something completely different, which is just 50 different experiments going on at the same time with uh, chaos continually reigning. And if you don't believe there's chaos reigning, just read the newspapers. <laughs> go go uh, check out what's happening at the federal level in Congress. We, check out what's happening are, at the state level in the legislature. Yes, it's, it's not orderly, let's say that. Privately and in, in a low-key way, for instance, the French and even the Germans have suggested that the United States is in decline um, because they see all this chaos. And, and yet uh, our the, economy the, is growing well, faster than anybody else's. Chairman Xi has said, pointedly that the West is in decline and China is going to continue to grow like mad and overtake us in no time and, and dominate the world. Well, the issue is that China is now facing maybe not deflation and a depression or severe recession, but the very nearly so. They're they're hurting. There's no question about their real estate. Uh, some of it has collapsed in the real estate market. The rest of it is being held up artificially and may collapse. Uh, Germany is experiment experiencing a combination of recession and 5.6% inflation. Uh, much higher than ours in, in, in deflation, I mean, in, in inflation, and much higher in ours, much lower economic performance in the United States. So it's an interesting, it, the experiment's not over with. It's the, 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 the fat lady ain't sung yet, as the old saying goes. But what we're seeing is free enterprise, and the United States, for all its warts and pimples, has the freest economy, the most unregulated economy in the world, uh, in the in the developed world. Um, and 
we are seeing that this Adam Smith-based economy that we have seems to be running off and leaving everybody else behind. It'd be interesting to see how this works out. One of the things that you may have heard over the years is that the Chinese economy is growing so fast and they have so many people that they will soon overtake the United States as the largest economy in the world. Probably not at this point. There, every yeah. indication is that their their economic growth will be continually slowing down through 2050, and there's, where ours isn't. There's a quick reference here. People have heard us talk about this. There are some measurements that show the Chinese economy already larger than the U.S. economy. Those measurements mm. are mostly imaginary. There's some, it's something called PPP, and it means like if you could live in the Chinese economy at, uh, at a relatively comfortable rate, your income is equivalent to a relatively comfortable rate in the United States. The, you know, I've done some pretty severe, uh, discussion on that. It was a good idea when it first came out in the early 2000s. And a lot of journalists that went to school about that time period and got their bachelor's in econ and went to work for institutions still think about PPP as if it's really important. The UN thinks it's really important. But to give you an example as to why it is not the same, um, in China, the building codes are nowhere near as stringent as they are in the United States, even just at a county level where you have to get a permit to build. You got to meet code in a lot of places in order to have a house. That means a certain amount of insulation. It means safe wiring. It means safe plumbing. Those aren't the same standards in China by any stretch. That's true in automobiles as well. They don't have shatterproof glass in their windshields as standard. They don't have, they don't come with airbags in all the cars. They, so when you compare a car, a new car in China costs a lot less than a new car in the United States. Why? Well, because there's a lot less stuff in it. And so to say it's the same, they have the same car as we do, it doesn't make sense. There isn't a price parity there. Uh, and that's what the concept is. That Well, it's parity if you can survive and be comfortable, except that surviving and being comfortable in Jamaica is not the same as surviving and being comfortable in on Manhattan Island. Uh, it's different. And you can't say it's the same except in a kind of ivory tower concept of, oh, that's essentially the same. It isn't. So the Chinese economy is the second largest economy on the planet. It's about two-thirds the size of the United States economy in real numbers, not in imaginary, well, if I lived there, I could make it on this. No, that's not how it works. Uh, it's kind of like saying that Louisiana and California are the same. They're not. You could be very wealthy in Louisiana or very wealthy in California and experience the same lifestyle. But the lifestyle of the people that are doing well in Louisiana is different than the lifestyle of people doing well in California. It's not good or bad or it's just different. We should know that. Uh, and when economics times tries to remove differences, it's, uh, it's, it gets too woke, I think. There we go. I've said the woke word. All right. So we're about out of time for this hour. Uh, we'll be back next hour and we have a lot more to talk about. The UAW strike, the uh, inflation in the world. Uh, we've got new technologies to discuss. What it, we got other stuff too. If you'd like to talk to us off the air though, we have voicemail waiting during the weekend, real live people during the week locally at 254-947-1111. Or toll-free if you have a landline, 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com. 
or tpwc.com, where you can see our newsletters going back, sign up for them, listen to our radio programs for a long time, find the podcasts wherever they're found. Uh, you can contact us through the contact form or email us directly at jeff at tpwc.com and or jake at tpwc.com. We actually read those things. Uh, until next hour, this has been the Personal Wealth Coach. Thank you very much for listening. We've had a good time.